0: morning. If you take God's word and turn to Matthew chapter 7, we're looking at verses 28 and 29 this morning, kind of this week and next week wrapping up this series that we've been looking at in Jesus' sermon. Now I'm curious, how many here have ever owned a Model T? Anybody? Anybody? You don't want to admit it, do you? There, I see one hand, yes. You still wish you owned it, didn't you? (laughs) It'd be worth a lot of money today. Well, this story goes back in time when Model Ts were first introduced to the market. And this young guy was proud of his car, and he knew a lot about his car, and one day it broke down, like most cars do. Now, he knew a lot about cars, and especially this one, so he went to work. And he tried different things, but each time he was unsuccessful, and he was growing more frustrated that the car would not start. And while he was working again on the car, a rather large limousine pulled up beside him. An elderly man stepped out and just watched. And he's kind of curious, like, what is this old man doing? And after a few minutes, the older man told the younger man to adjust a very specific part on the engine. And the younger man was kind of arrogantly thinking, There is no way this older guy knows more about this car than I do. But to humor him, I'll adjust the part. So he did. And to his surprise, the car started. He looks at the old man and said, how did you know what to do? And the old man said, my name is Henry Ford. I invented this car. We come to the end of the sermon. And this has been more than just a set of moral teachings although many treat this passage as such. It's more than knowing some things about life, although people treat this passage as such. This sketch that Jesus gives to us of a counterculture, and we often talk about radical discipleship, and what fascinates me is we have to put the word radical in front of discipleship. We really shouldn't. But it tells us that this normal way of thinking about discipleship really isn't the way that Jesus taught us. But the question we're faced with this morning is not so much what do we make of his teachings but who is this teacher? Do we believe that he is who he says he is? Do we believe he is the creator of life? Do we believe that he's the designer of this world and everything in it? Do we believe that he understands the problem and knows what to adjust so that it can be fixed? Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we read these words. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were shocked. They were astounded at his teaching. I'm curious how many times we read through this passage and we were not astonished. We were not shocked. And it's because we don't get the full intent of who he is and what he's saying. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We want to talk about the authority of Jesus this morning. And it's been scattered throughout the passage on numerous levels. And it tells us again who he is. And if he is who he claims he is, then what he just shared with us, I guess we could say, is a no-option policy. We have to take it for what it is. It is a blueprint, it is an outline, it's a plan that we should navigate this world in and not get sucked into the culture of our day. So the first thing we find out, it's really not the first thing, I'm just going to have a collection of seven things here. We see in this sermon is that he gives us his authority as the teacher, in Matthew chapter 5 and there's a little phrase that keeps happening over and over and over and over again. It reads this way. In Matthew 5:18, for truly I say to you. It's a nice way of saying and it's the word amen at the beginning instead of the end and it's a nice way of saying listen what I'm about to say is really true. And he says it again in chapter 6, verse 2, truly I say to you, in chapter 6, verse 5, truly I say to you, chapter 6, verse 16, truly I say to you, 625, therefore I tell you, 629, yet I will tell you over and over again. And remember the passage in Matthew 5 in the sermon where he says, listen, you've heard it said this way, but here's what I say. In Matthew 7, verse 15, beware of false prophets. Throughout this whole sermon, he's saying, listen, I am the teacher. I am telling you the truth. And I have a claim that there is absolute truth. And so when we think about authority, we have to come to terms with truth. Who? But also the source of truth. And that's just not a matter of truth in our heads, but it's also a truth in our hearts. Because if we truly believe that he has the authority as a teacher, then we submit to his teachings. Secondly, this sermon tells us he has the authority as the Christ. Remember back in Matthew 5, verse 17, he said this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is saying that he is the fulfillment, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is what they've been teaching about, he's what they've been praying about, he is what they've been looking for all their lives. Now listen to what he says in Matthew 11, because he even makes it more clear. In verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? He's talking about the Messiah. And Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news to preach to them. He didn't say, yeah, I'm the one. He says, no, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence from Scripture. Look at the evidence that has been foretold. But look at my life. Just not what I say, but how I live. And I love the last verse in verse 6 of chapter 11. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Implication is that he will offend people. I know in our world today, we're so cautious and careful that we don't offend people. You've heard me say, well, some people need to be offended. (laughs) Not with my truth, but with God's truth. And so often the sin of offense keeps us from hearing and listening to what Christ has to say to us. But his claim that he is God's expected one. He is the Messiah. He's what they longed for. He's what they watched and waited for. He says, I am he. Then there is the authority as the Lord. Lord is a designated one who is to be obeyed. He's king of the castle. He is head of the church. And that last phrase in chapter 7, he says, Many will say, Lord, Lord but they're unwilling to listen. And the counterpart of this sermon in Luke 6:46 he says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you?" In John 13:13, 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. Now I have to confess this morning, we struggle over Christ being the Lord of his church. If we're honest, if we're part of that confession that we talk about, one of the major early catalysts of the Protestant Reformation was a book written by John Huss, a Bohemian Christian who preceded Martin Luther by a full century. He wrote a book called De Ecclesia, the Church, that's what it means. And one of Huss's most profound points was, and he proclaimed this in the title of the fourth chapter Christ, the only head of the church. He writes in that, for Christ alone is the head of the church, pointing out that most church leaders in his era actually despise the lordship of Christ. He goes on to say, to such a low pitch is the clergy come that they hate those who preach often and call Jesus as Lord. Now, Huss's candor in the Christian community cost him his life. He was declared a heretic over this whole lordship of Jesus Christ and burned at the stake in the year 1415. As I think about that and I think about what happened with Martin Luther and I think about where we are in America, and I think about where, where we are in the American church, I have to confess that I think we are in need of this kind of reformation in 2017. What we have to recover in our minds and our hearts is Jesus Christ as Lord. That he is to be listened to, he is to be obeyed. He is our teacher, he is the Christ. He's also authority as our savior. Remember the narrow way in Matthew chapter one, when we made the announcement by the angels, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Matthew nine, verse two, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is our Savior. Now we're going to pause for a moment in the message. And as a point of application, we're going to participate in what we often call sacraments. We call it communion. And communion is an outward sign of an inward grace. You know, last week, if you were here, the baptismal service, in fact, it was incredible, wasn't it? I mean, the story shared just blessed me all week long. But baptism was an outward sign of a decision of their hearts to follow Jesus. And I don't know about you after last week, I just said, you know what, sign me up. This is what I'm in for. You know, I would do that every single week. I would do that all Sunday morning. I wouldn't preach if we had that many people to be baptized that shared the way they did. And so communion is a similar kind of sacrament. We remember his death and resurrection. The bread represents his body, the cup represents his blood, and we remember Christ our Savior. And I know sometimes we say, well, you know, salvation is free. No, it costs. It cost Christ his life. Someone had to pay. And Christ paid. So you and I do not have to pay. Because it's an impossible debt. There is no way on a human level that we could ever pay enough to get into heaven without Christ the Savior. Amen? So, as we share this together... And I want to encourage those watching online because I know sometimes communion uh, can be a little bit of dead time if you're watching. What I'd like you to do is this. If you're at home and you're a believer in Christ, just kind of get a pen and paper out and start writing how God has blessed you through Christ. Just make a list and keep making a list. It's kind of like that song, you know, count your blessings. Name them one by one. And if you're watching at home and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to think about this question. What is keeping me from Christ the Savior? And you can have all your reasons and all your excuses and everything else, but I just want to remind you that the only thing keeping you is you. There's no sin that can keep you out of heaven except for the sin of unbelief. So, for us here, let this be a time of confession, reflection, and thanksgiving. And let's do this as a fellowship. Let's enter into communion. So far we have looked um, at the authority of Christ. He is the teacher. He is the christ He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He also has authority as judge. Remember the words in Matthew 7, verse 23? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he declares, not you or me, he declares who is in and who is out. And the only way to be on the inside, and this goes for anyone and everyone, is to be in relationship with Christ. But think about how cool this is. And I always kind of play different scenarios because I I don't know what it's going to be like. None of us do. But just imagine you're walking in, you see Christ sitting on his throne and you don't get to talk by the way, (laughs) but you walk in and his eye catches yours and he smiles, gives you a wink, thumbs up and you relax because you know you're one of his, but he has authority as the judge. He tells us this in his sermon. There's also authority as the Son of God. In Matthew 7 21, again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And you can imagine that point, the crowd kind of stops. And what did he just say? I mean, we thought his daddy was Joseph. Did he just claim to be the Son of God? And of course, then that shifts just not the son of God, but he also has authority of being God. You know, the shift so early in the sermon, and it often goes unnoticed. We have the blessed are, blessed are, blessed ours. But in, right at the end of that, he says this, in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely, And the little phrase there is on my account. He's claiming to have the authority of God. He is what they are all about. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what did the prophets get persecuted for? For thus saith the Lord for using the words that God gave to them. They were persecuted for being followers of God. And so he puts himself in that same position. And of course, at the end of the sermon, he claims that he expects people to build their lives on his words. That's building on the rock versus building on the sand. And we went through this last week how, you know, both houses have quality materials. They both look good. But what we don't see is what is underneath. Now he becomes a little more bold in the Gospel of John. And we have these phrases throughout the Gospel of John that I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. And what goes unnoticed in our English translation is that the phrase actually says, I am that I am. And that goes back to a Hebrew word When Moses was trying to get out of being the called one to go deliver Israel. And he says, who should I say sent me? And we hear the words of God, I am that I am. Jesus takes that phrase. And it's why when you see the passage and you start reading the passage. And they get so upset when he says, I am the bread of life. And they're like, well, what's the big deal? What's the controversy well, it's because he was taking the name of God that was given to Moses and inserting that for himself. And that's why they were furious, because they believed he was a fraud. So when we read, they were astonished that he had this authority not like the scribes. See, the scribes taught about Jesus or about the Messiah or about God and Jesus taught from the position of being God. He teaches the true version of the law. He came to fulfill the law. He is the Lord to be obeyed. He is the savior that blesses us with life. He is the judge. He claims to be God's son, but also he claims to be on par with God. Now take all this. And again, when we read the sermon, We have to ask ourselves, number one, are we shocked? And do we understand the authority of Christ? I think this is a crucial issue that we face today in America, in our church. When you think about the American church in our culture, when you think about how our desire is to be respectable, our desire is to be believable, when you think about our desire is more concerned with our reputation among those in our culture than our reputation with Christ. See if He's Lord, the first thing we ask is, God, are you pleased? Not how do we rank in popularity in our community? And again, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we go out there and on purpose we make people mad at us. You know, the message offends, not the messenger. And there are times as Christians, we have to be honest. We have done some really poor, salt, and light things, and we've offended because of our traditions and not because of the words of Christ. At times, we are indistinguishable from the world. And again, please hear me. I'm not talking about outward stuff, I'm talking about core values, our hearts, our conversations. It's how we navigate our jobs. It's how we navigate our homes. It's how we treat fellow employees. It's how we treat bosses. It's how we treat people who respect us and those who do not respect us. I've across many people that are in really tough job situations and what it means to be Christ in the midst of those. I mean, that is our calling. But it's my take, and this is my personal opinion. You can disagree with me. I think we've lost the understanding of the authority of Christ. And because we lost the understanding of the authority of Christ, we've lost living it out. And so we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see them as quaint little kind words, not this really kind of surgical procedure that leads us to a counterculture that humbly bows our knees to an audience of one. And because we've lost the understanding of the authority of Christ, we've lost our saltiness, we've lost our light. And there's no evidence to a cultural alternative that God has a new and better way to live. And you can see this most and foremost in our crises. We do not handle crises well. And because of this, no one asks us about the hope that we have in us that is so different in terms of how our culture responds Crises. That phrase was written by Peter to a church that was being persecuted, a church that was losing its lives. I believe, and again, this is my personal impression of doing this for 39 years, that the church's hope has shifted. It's shifted to politics, it's shifted to economics, it's shifted to our country. Rather than being citizens of the kingdom of God. Rather than bowing to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Rather than believing what he says. Like Henry Ford coming alongside us saying, listen, you need to adjust this. See, our call is to live under the authority of Christ. Period. And I'm going to have more to say about that next week. But we're going to close our service out by singing a song that really reflects our living before Christ. And as we do that, it's been our tradition here at GBC, along with communion, one of the practical expressions that we do is we give. We submit to his authority to be generous. And the offering we're about to take is for those in need. It doesn't go into our operational budget. It doesn't go into paying salaries. It doesn't go into our expenses here at the church. We submit to his authority to helping those who are in need. And so this fellowship offering is all about giving. It's about bowing our knee to him. It's about being generous to a world out there that doesn't know Christ And the money is used on many different levels. It's used for people inside our church. It's used for people outside of our church in our community. And we have a team that really investigates that and makes decisions. And they do a great job with that because many requests come in every week. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. And we're going to give us a profession of our submission to authority to Christ as we sing a song called He Reigns. Will you pray with me? Father God. one thing to talk about your authority. And we often miss it in this passage, but you had some pretty incredible claims about who you were. It's one thing for us to know that in our heads and say, yes, we affirm you as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the judge. We know all that, but to shift it down into our hearts is a, is a whole different understanding. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit would break our hearts I pray that your spirit would take down the idols that have kept us from honoring you. I pray, Lord, that all these cultural traps that we get involved with, that distract us, we just lay them down. We stop making excuses. We stop giving reasons. But we humbly come before you, we bow our knees, and we say, okay, whatever. Whatever. I pray for wisdom, Lord, both as individuals and a church that we follow where you are leading. So often we allow our passions to get in the road. But where we see you working, may we eagerly enter into that, even though we're scared and afraid. And I pray, Lord, that our witness, our salt and our light begins to shine in ways that we cannot even define it. Because you've called us to be here. You've placed us here, you've placed us in our jobs, you placed us exactly where we are at because together as a body with you the head is an unstoppable force in our community. I pray for all of us Lord, that are here. none of us are excluded. If we're alive and if we are breathing, you have plans for us. May we see that. May we enter into that. May we engage in that. And together as a congregation, Lord, may we just celebrate what you are doing in our midst and where you are leading us. Help us, Lord, to hear these words with the authority that they have. Help us, Lord, to be so in love with you that our heart jumps when we hear your words. Sometimes it jumps for joy. Sometimes it jumps for fear because we're like, what did you just ask us? Help us, Lord, to allow you to reign in our lives. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.